You know the way that they talk about the things that impact you the most? They kind of go from one to ten. The first one is usually a death in the family. I was going through about five or six of those in the space of a couple of months, and I had to very quickly figure out a way to kind of deal with this. Welcome to the Sleep Junkies podcast. I'm Jeff Mann, and I'm the founder and editor of sleepjunkies.com. And we cover the whole conversation on sleep. So in recent years, we've seen a big resurgence of interest in ancient practices like meditation and yoga and mindfulness. And also recently, we've seen people start to use a lot of these techniques to help with sleep problems, to help with calming your mind before you go to bed, to control your breathing, to get you into that state where you're relaxed, to drift off to sleep naturally. And there's been some big companies in the space like Headspace and Calm providing meditation soundtracks and apps to deal with the practice of mindfulness. But it's easy to forget that these practices have existed for a long time, for thousands of years. And I guess today is someone who earlier in her life took a journey and travelled to the other side of the world to study and explore some of these techniques But what has this got to do with sleep? Well, as it turns out, our guest in later life started to experience some issues with her sleep. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about how some of these ancient practices of meditation and yoga and mindfulness and also some other alternative therapies you may not have heard of. We're going to talk about how these things apply to sleep issues, but also improve our general health and well-being. Anyway, that's enough for the introduction. If you're liking the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all those other places. And you can check us out on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course on the website sleepjunkies.com. Okay, hope you enjoy this one. On with the show. Good morning. Today I'm joined with Deirdre O'Connor, all the way from Ireland. Deirdre is an integrated sleep therapist and trainer. Good morning, Deirdre. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Really good, thanks. Really great. So your practice, your training and your experience and your work is based in traditional yoga and meditation practice, but also you do a whole load of other therapies and techniques, including mindfulness and movement techniques as well? Yes, that's right, Jeff. I was really looking in terms of sleep, especially looking at how to address not just the mental aspect, but also the physiology and how our nervous system is impacted by stress and how that might stop us from sleeping. So I trained in craniosychotherapy, uh, which is wonderful for addressing any kind of shocks and traumas in the body and also in somatic uh, therapy as well which essentially is uh, turning off the turning off and relaxing the muscular, the neuromuscular impact on our stress levels, really. Um, and currently I'm training in Haikomi, so addressing the, the, the limbic brain in this part of the puzzle of how can we sleep and how can we sleep better and deeper. That's kind of a, a brief outline of what I'm doing right now. Great, great. Well, you've trained for... Over 20 years, you lived in India, you trained at a prestigious, long-standing yoga school there, and also you went on to study Buddhist philosophy and meditation, and you, you lived in 
monasteries. I'm just really curious to hear about these experiences you had and how that fed into what you're doing now. Sure, yeah. It's actually about 25 years now at this stage. I was working as a, an administrator in a school. I think at the time, I was very aware that my anxiety, even though it hadn't impacted my sleep, it was really impacting, I suppose, uh, enjoyment of life. Uh, I was very shy at the time, wouldn't say boo to goose. It was something in me that knew I had to do something about it, but I really didn't know what. I think that was 1989. I hadn't even heard of the word meditation, but there was... There was something that I was curious about because the little that I heard about it was that it would allow me to relax and that sounded like a really good idea. However, I ended up uh, taking a career break, went to India and uh, I lived there for about three years, which also included trips to Thailand as well to allow myself to immerse myself in the practice of meditation. But at the beginning, it was really a dip into, into yoga. And I spent six months at the Bihar School of Yoga and learned much. My teacher was a renowned master and had taught thousands of people. But I was really a greenhorn. I didn't know anything about anything in terms of yoga or meditation. You know, I had never sat down, even lay down to do any aspect of yoga at all. So it was very new. It was very foreign. uh, But it really woke up something in me because I, I think it addressed some level of anxiety that's kind of hard to put into words but as we were practicing daily you know I noticed that something was changing within me I think it was from that first kind of taste not being so anxious being more at ease that I began to explore deeper in terms of meditation I then went I went north north in India up to Dharamsala where the Dalai Lama resides and I ended up training and studying with one of his one of his main teachers. In fact, it was quite extraordinary that I got that opportunity to to do that. And of course, here was a teacher that was deeply immersed in the practices of meditation from a very very young age. He just exuded ease and compassion and an ability to be with whatever arose. Whatever arose in terms of his life, and um, I was really impressed by that. It really encouraged me to move deeper onto the path. So yes, I, I did uh, spent the next it was almost three years in total, just expanding my knowledge and deepening my experience. In India and Nepal, let's say these aren't new things. These are things that have been around for thousands mm-hmm. of years. The training and the schools have very deep traditions. It's very much part of the culture. And, and even medicine. Just wondered if you could talk about how things like yoga and meditation are viewed in India and Nepal and contrast it with our views here in the West. That's a really good question. I think the first thing that strikes me is in the West, it is often looked as at as a quick fix. And we often have a kind of a sense of if I do an eight-week course, for instance, well, that's it, you know. I'll be able to access all the benefits that that meditation can bring me. And yet over in the East, it is such a part of life, not just in the monasteries, but even in daily living. I'm thinking actually of even as you walk down the road, the greeting that you're offered in India. So somebody may come up to you and they place their hands together and there's just a gentle bang of the head in acknowledging your deeper self. That's something that runs right through the culture. Uh, It's not really seen as something separate. 
Meditation is not seen as something that you do just sitting on your cushion, for instance, which is what we do view it as here. It's a much larger piece of their life. They're really embedded in more of a stillness than we are here in the West. They look at it as a lifetime experience and, and as a lifestyle, actually. So you studied in India and, and studied with teachers who were working with the Dalai Lama. How does that differ to studying yoga? In the monasteries, it is mostly, it would be mostly meditation practice that we're studying. In the ashrams, which are like the yoga schools, then we're studying all aspects of yoga, which includes meditation, but it also includes the physical practice. But interestingly, the training that I took there, there was such a, a slowness in introducing us to the physical aspect, because that's only such a small part Whereas here in the West, we tend to think of yoga just as the physical practices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's interesting as well. I mean, I, I absolutely adore yoga, but I didn't at the beginning. I really hated it. And um, I only did it because I was actually in the ashram and it was encouraged. And I really only wanted to sit down on my meditation cushion and just meditate the day away because it, it really gave me something very profound and very deep in terms of addressing my anxiety, really. I think the quickness in which um, we touched on this before, the quickness that we expect results, it's not really doing us any favors because we give up quite quickly. Uh, whereas if we took the approach that this is more of a lifestyle and didn't kind of go at it hammer and tongs, I think it would benefit us a lot more. Totally. I mean, that, I think people get attracted to practices like yoga and meditation and, and mindfulness mm. because they see it as a way of achieving some kind of calm, some kind of stillness. I mean, I used to do Bikram yoga. You, you're in a room, it's 40 degrees, literally dripping buckets of sweat. Um, some people get addicted to it, you know. I, I was slightly <laughs> addicted to it because it's like a rush. And um, but I've got to say, when I was doing yoga on a regular basis, some of the most intense, sort of moving kind of moments were you just lying on your back, flat out. Mm. And those were the times that I found most valuable and kind of blew my mind a lot mm. of the time. And it was nothing to do with the physical, as you say. It was kind of the teacher talking through and making you aware of your breathing and what's going on in your mind it's amazingly powerful but as you say it's not really all about the physical it's probably the polar opposite yes the polar right. opposite yeah. Right. yeah yeah and I, I love your experience you know that uh, it was in the lying down and allowing this because when we come into shavasana we're allowing the physical impact of the yoga to to integrate into our nervous system and our brain. And without that pause, without that break of shavasana, that's lost. You know, it's almost like you, you're losing the impact of the physical part of yoga. You know, so I think the physical is really important, but where it leads us to, which is what I think you're saying, is even more important. Um, we're going to talk about this later in, in the podcast. Mm. So you studied abroad for a while and you, you had lots of different experiences and trained in lots of different, different styles of yoga came back to to Ireland so we'll skip forward a little bit and you write about it really movingly on your website I, I'll encourage people to have a read you had some life changes in in later life and realized that um your sleep 
was affected because of these life changes and hormonal changes. I'm just going to summarize this and praise this. And you say that, well, I do yoga. I know all about yoga. I know all about mindfulness and meditation. I can fix these sleep problems. But it didn't actually, it wasn't that straightforward, was it? You had to take a little journey to figuring it out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It really frustrated me, actually, because I expected that I could fix anything with yoga and meditation. And certainly, because sleep was not an issue for me up until that point. But it was really a really interesting kind of journey because it really allowed me to see not just the impact that these life changes were having on my nervous system from a physical impact and a physiological impact, uh, but I touched briefly on the limbic system and the role that the limbic system plays in terms of sleep. So the limbic system affects and influences our emotional responses. So falling asleep, that was kind of all right, even though you were experiencing some sleep problems at this time. Yeah. It wasn't the falling asleep aspect. It was mm. more you'd wake up in the night and then you couldn't get back to sleep. You know, recurring thoughts, how you describe them. Mm. Can you describe how you thought, right, how do I tackle this? A lot of what we're dealing with, particularly in terms of anxiety and mental states, is not conscious. It's said that something about 90% of our mental processes are actually unconscious. So we're not fully aware of them. And certainly our emotional reactions to life are very often not conscious. So that means that we can't actually put words in them. We can't address them through the mind, you know, by telling ourselves that we can fix this, I can go to sleep, because that's not the level at which we're actually impacted. Uh, so I really wanted to go in a little bit deeper and find, I suppose, the deeper reasons to uh, what was keeping me awake at night. I really believe in a sense of uh, our own inner knowing so the inner knowing is separate to our cognitive processes, which will tell us how to fix something. Our inner knowing leads us more very much on a journey to uncovering the deeper layers of what's happening internally in terms of emotional responses. So that's what I was kind of curious about when I decided, okay, I can't do this by myself. I can do a certain amount. I can do a huge amount with my yoga and meditation. But I'm, it's like I, I, I need somebody outside of myself to be able to see more clearly what's going on. Just to dive into that a little bit, using these techniques, for instance, for sleep, you know, meditation techniques, mindfulness, certain yoga practices. So you tried all those things. And, and even though they, they were helping you to some extent, it wasn't the answer to your, your sleep problems as a whole. Exactly. Exactly. And I think one of the one of the reasons for that is I think that yoga, meditation, mindfulness, etc., they're really good when we're in in a place of fight or flight. That's our stress response. But when we go into overload or overwhelm, we're actually going into trauma and our brain literally shuts down, particularly the rational part of our brain. That needs another attention, an intervention that can deal with the overwhelm. And I think a lot of us that aren't sleeping are in the overwhelm rather than what I would say is the ordinary physiological kind of stress response of fight or flight. So I think yoga and meditation, as I said, are, are wonderful for taking what I would say is almost like the top layers of stress. It's almost like the, the, the layers that we're actually able to manage by ourselves. And they're really, really important. And they're really important on a daily basis so that we don't actually tip over into overwhelm. 
But what had happened to me was, unbeknownst to myself, I had actually tipped over into overwhelm. That was why the yoga and meditation wasn't giving me enough. It helped me to go to sleep. But it was the overwhelm and the impact that that was having on my nervous system. That's what was waking me up. Uh, so that's what needed addressing from a different perspective. You use the word trauma. Yeah. These could have been things that happened to us years and years ago. So is this what you're talking about, this idea of overwhelm, these things sort of bubbling up, not in our conscious mind? That's right. You know the way that they talk about, or you often see lists of you know, the, the things that impact you the most? And they kind of go from one to 10. The first mm. one is, is, I think, usually a death in the family, something like this. I was going through about five or six of those in the space of a couple of months. Life was throwing everything at me. And I had to yeah. very quickly figure out a way to kind of deal with this. You know, and I, yeah. I think because I had been in the business, if you like, for so long, I had the trust that if I got the right help, things would be okay. I could come back to regulating my sleep, regulating my nervous system, and just regulating the overload. So that's, that's really what I went in search of, and luckily I found it. So I think it would be useful to talk about the actual practices that you're doing, because we've been talking quite generally about this. So I'll just list off some of the practices, say bedtime yoga, embodied mindfulness, deep breathing, body rolling, body pressure weights, cranial sacral therapy, yoga nidra. That's a lot of stuff there. Probably some people <laughs> uh, are thinking, I, I don't really know what that is. The first two is so bedtime yoga and embodied mindfulness. I suppose those are more what people are familiar with when we talk about these ideas of yoga and meditation and mindfulness. And I like the way you described them as the top layers. I guess you deal with it on an individual basis. Very, very much so, yeah. Um, so the, the first place that, um, that I meet most people would be in workshops and classes. And at that stage, I would bring in the, the bedtime yoga, the embodied mindfulness, the grounding pads that uh, you mentioned there, which are really good. They're, they're used in clinics and hospitals. So they're a weighted blanket or a weighted pad that's used a lot for children with ADD, ADHD, etc. It's a really useful self-care tool that you can invest in yourself. It really addresses the overload in terms of our sensory impact because we're having so much information. Something like a weighted blanket will send into the nervous system a different message. It's lovely if you're spinning and you don't have any energy to do yoga. Just lie down on the floor, put on a weighted blanket, wrap yourself in a weighted blanket. Sometimes at the beginning, actually, what I was using was, you know, those flat gym weight, oh. about 3 kgs, 5 kgs, placing them in different parts of my body. And they were probably right. okay. the they were probably the quickest way to calm me down. I'm guessing that it's going to make a difference where you place these weights. Yeah. So usually, um, I would think about placing them on the abdomen, and there's a couple of reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is that in our enteric brain, in in our gut, we hold ninety percent of our serotonin. And serotonin is one of the chemicals that changes at nighttime when it gets dark into melatonin, which is our main sleep chemical. So calming this whole area first is really essential and really productive. And rather than having adrenaline pumping through our entire gut is to be able to 
have the potential to release our serotonin levels so that when we're ready to go to sleep, we actually have enough serotonin to change into melatonin at nighttime. So we talked a bit about weighted blankets, body pressure, weights. So bedtime yoga, uh, what kind of thing would, would that encompass? Okay, you know, some yogas will, will speed us up, but the bedtime yoga is specifically geared towards slowing down. So you're thinking more in terms of poses that can bring us into a quieter place more naturally. So thinking about uh, forward bends, for instance, can actually do these poses in bed. And I actually have videos with a lot of the practices that I actually do. And the bedtime one is it's really geared into releasing, you know, the main areas of tension that we're holding. So think abdomen, think lower back and think shoulders and neck, because again, we understand that we kind of get tight and tense shoulders, but what we don't probably understand is that when we haven't properly addressed the release through these areas, we can still be sending messages into our brain to stay alert, to stay turned on, to stay awake, as it were. So I do practices that are addressing the particular kind of neuromuscular patterns of constriction through the neck, through the throat, through the shoulders, that will send messages then into the amygdala to say, hey, do you know what? We're not in danger here. We can calm down. And then when those messages are sent through, we're changing the chemicals that are released. So for instance, I'm just going back to the the faster yoga. We're often energizing ourselves and sending in adrenaline, which is wonderful at the beginning of the day. But it's the last thing that you need at nighttime. So these are much more slower, gentler, more interior practices, more meditative, um, I guess, in a sense. But they do have a lovely effect of releasing, you know, our patterns of neuromuscular holding in certain parts of the body. You mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit about the nervous system and the often called fight or flight and rest and digest. So this is mm-hmm. the idea of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because this is about the things that happen in our body unconsciously and that, that we're not aware of. Exactly. Yeah, it's very much a, an unconscious reaction. It's an evolutionary process. So our nervous systems are wired to turn our attention to anything that might go wrong. They're really wired for danger. But through the parasympathetic nervous system, we can learn to override those responses a little more. So the sympathetic is definitely going to bring us into activity. If we have a situation where we need to get something done really, really quickly, we often activate, again, unconsciously, as you said, the sympathetic nervous system. If we're in a situation that our nervous system perceives to be danger, now it may not be. You know, our nervous system will react even when we're watching something on TV, thriller or something like that. So the the problem is that if we've gone into the fight, flight, or freeze, the part of our brain that can actually make decisions actually closes down. But but these things that you're talking about, bedtime yoga, so it's it's a way of getting people out of this fight or flight, this sympathetic nervous system, and getting them into the parasympathetic, the rest and digest response, which slows everything down. So that's talking about the bedtime yoga Mm. and how that affects our nervous system and then embodied mindfulness as well Mm -hmm. we did a podcast about cbti Mm -hmm. some of these mindfulness techniques are coming into cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and you describe it as taming the monkey mind yeah i guess i teach it from a slightly different perspective with everything that i offer i'm looking at the physiological response to stress 
so how that's held in the body, particularly in terms of muscular activation. So the embodied mindfulness is slow movements that, again, are giving in messages of rest and digest. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it through what is known as somatic movement, I think I may have mentioned it before, there are different sets of muscles. For instance, there's a pattern of holding in our body, which is known as the pattern of anxiety. So there are particular muscles that, when they're activated and when they're held, will actually bring us into anxiety. And the somatic movement actually allows us to let go of that particular pattern. So rather than it being just habitual, you know, free-floating anxiety, we have a method to to bring us out of that. So that's really what the somatic mi- mindfulness is. And from there, then, we can drop into, into practices of stillness. Often people are too geared up in a way to be able to sit down and do mindfulness. They're kind of like jumping jacks. And I think we have to soothe and allow the nervous system to rest through the movements before we can actually do mindfulness in a beneficial way. So you practice this a a different way into mindfulness through um, somatic movements. Exactly. So breathing, uh, Deirdre, deep breathing is something that's really important. Exactly. And again, it's just another entryway into the rest and digest. I, I think it's probably one of the first places to start, actually. Because if your breathing isn't relaxed, you know, again, you're sending the wrong messages to the brain if you want to sleep. But people talk about some of these techniques like box breathing and six, seven, eight breathing. Do you find those things useful or not useful? Or I do think that you need to have some kind of structure around it. The box breathing, for instance, so I think they can be very useful. One of the practices that I do, it's breathing in through the nose for seven, holding for four and breathing out for eight. That's something that I learned from Dr. Andrew Weil. There's something about the breathing and the counting, counting in a very particular way, that actually focuses our mind much more than just breathing in and out with no kind of counting or structure around it. I just want to talk about two more things. Mm-hmm. Um, so also you, you practice craniosacral therapy mm-hmm. and also yoga nidra. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly just go through those as well and how these integrate into your sleep therapies so the, i'll just address the yoga nidra first i send my clients audios of yoga nidra and it's about a 30 to 40 minute practice and it's essentially a practice that is relaxing all aspects of the body and it also addresses the mental levels and the emotional levels so it's a very deep practice Essentially, it's a relaxation process at the beginning, which guides you into deeper practices of addressing the emotional and mental levels. There's something about the practice and the way that it guides you in so deeply. It actually brings you into an alpha state that we need to be able to fall into sleep. So it's very powerful. It's something that I give to my clients if they wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning, it will allow you to drop back again. Okay, that's yoga nidra. Craniosacral therapy, that's something I hadn't come across. That's done one-to-one basis. It's a body-based therapy. Again, as with everything that I do, it's addressing the impact of, of stress and anxiety on the nervous system. It has its roots in osteopathy. And essentially, we're working through the tissues and the craniosacral fluid. The easiest way I might be able to describe it is if you think in terms of acupuncture, and how 
um, acupuncture allows the energy to be released from its places of constriction uh, through the use mm. of needles. Yep. We're using hands-on what's known as palpation to affect the same. Uh, so we're really having a, a profound influence on not just the nervous system, but her hormones and our capacity to release deeper levels of not just muscular contraction, but emotional contraction as well, emotional impact. It's been really, really interesting. I've learned loads. I mean, you've been, what's encouraging is it seems that there's lots of different ways into cracking these sleep problems, lots of different techniques, you know, physical therapies, uh, mindfulness therapies, meditation. Where can people find out a bit more about you? I, I do online consultations and um, I have just recently produced my bedtime yoga videos. So have a look out for those. So yeah, my, my website, it's www.deepsleepclinic.com. That's where right. you'll find me. I also have a Facebook page as well, uh, Deep Sleep Clinic. And one last thing that I want to say, Jeff, is that you had mentioned that, that there are lots of kind of self-care techniques. And, you know, I really did come from a place of extraordinary anxiety. So if I can do this, like anybody can do it. That's great. That's great. Thanks so much, Jeff. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe or hit us up on social, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And of course, you can visit the website, sleepjunkies.com. See you on the next one.